Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. It's good to see you again, Reed. I feel like we haven't recorded anything in at least a few weeks. Yeah, although that's completely transparent to our audience, right? The magic of editing. Right. And part of that is, has been that you've been enjoying some time off, some leave, relaxing there at home. Yeah, trying to reconnect and uh, also to give my wife some time on her own. So she's actually been on vacation for the last week. So good for her. Well, yes, good for her and good for you. You're a good man letting her have that space away from the kids and as well as you. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I mean, this isn't what we're here to talk about today, but relationships are all about give and take and working together. So whatever it takes, man, whatever it takes. I, I think that's awesome. Well, before we cut over to the interview with Scott Hambrick, I want to set the stage a little bit, give our audience an idea of when and why this interview took place. So Scott Hambrick, he owns a business called the Online Great Books that focuses people's attention on the classics, the classic great books, such as the Odyssey, the Iliad, the writings of Aristotle and Plato, moving on up through the, the generations, studying the, the Roman and the Renaissance philosophers, you know, the, the books that have stood the test of time. And I invited him to come on to our podcast to do an interview because I was interested to hear his take on some of the requirements, some of the things that we as officers have to meet in order to be able to join the Air Force. Not only that, he's also an Air Force dependent. Uh, As you listen to the interview, you'll hear about his experience growing up in the Air Force and how that kind of colored his view of Air Force officers as well as the world around him. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective that we haven't brought in before is the a citizen of this nation who has some connection to and some experience with the military. We've mentioned many times, right, Colin, that this is a club, if you will, and we decide who is in, what the parameters are. But having somebody who has had some connection, I think it's good to get some outside opinions. You know, we need to, you know, as members of the military, we need to understand the country that we represent and that we serve. So it's good to get and listen to folks from all different, all different walks of life. Absolutely. And Scott is one of those that doesn't pull any punches. You'll hear in the interview that he's very candid with the way he views the Air Force and officers. And I think that perspective is, if not refreshing, it is at least useful and worth discussing. And just to set the stage further, I did this interview all the way back in December. So if it feels like some of the things are a little bit behind in the sequencing of the podcast, that 
is why. But we are excited to bring that interview to you now and offer some of our thoughts on it. So without further ado, we'll cut it over to my interview with Scott Hambrick. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade, and today I am joined by Scott Hambrick. Say hello, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, man. Absolutely. We are excited to have you here. You will be the second guest on this show and the first civilian. So lucky you. Right. Who was the first guest? Who's this clown? So the first guest was a couple weeks ago. We had Major Greg Carter. He's a nuclear operations missileer. He's one of those guys that sits 60 feet under the ground, turns the key and, you know, sits there waiting to receive the order from the president to crack the world in half. Right, right. You know, I read, I read, I've looked for this and not been able to find it, but some time ago I read a letter that Eisenhower wrote as he was leaving the presidency. And he said, you know, we've got these nuclear weapons here. Atomic, I guess at the time and bad deal. And we've got this publicly elected official who can push the button. He's like, not a good idea. Not a good idea. And he uh, pretty much recommended uh, building a whole like (laughs) fail safe, like bureaucratic system to protect the use of that from an elected official. I mean, they could elect anybody. That is true. You said that you read that somewhere? Yeah, it was a letter that Eisenhower wrote. I think it was an open letter that he wrote at the end of his presidency. Interesting. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen it. We'll have to see if we can get our hands on that and put it up on, in the Facebook group so our audience can discuss it. Yeah, he, you know, super smart guy. He's the, he coined that military industrial complex term, you know, and was worried about, uh, worried about that and a uh, pretty prescient guy there. Oh, absolutely. We've discussed Eisenhower a few times on this podcast, and I'm sure he'll come up many times again. Great leader, great officer for the the Army at the time. I think that had the Air Force existed at that point, he would have joined the Air Force instead of the Army. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Is this this esprit de corps, or are there reasons? Not that that isn't a reason. So this is reality right here. After D-Day... Eisenhower was walking the beach with his son. So his son was a lieutenant in the army at the time. And they were walking the beaches right after D-Day. And his son said, hey, dad, I don't think that we should be here. You know, we're too exposed. And Eisenhower responded, son, if I didn't have air supremacy, I wouldn't be here. So Eisenhower recognized the, the importance of air power and what it provided capability-wise to the Army. So, I don't know. Yeah. I think he would have joined the Air Force if he had the option at the time. If we get a chance to dig him up and, you know, we'll find out. All right. Well, that, that's some good, uh, good background information there. Uh, but enough about Eisenhower. Scott, we want to hear about you. Why don't you uh, take a m- minute and tell us about yourself, who you are, your interest in the Air Force, your experience with the Air Force, and we'll go from there. Well, I am Scott Hamburg. I'm 45. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I've been a small business person my whole life. Uh, my dad is a retired 
Air Force puke. He re- retired at E9. Uh, we wouldn't call an E9 in the Air Force a puke. Well, you know what? He was in the he was in the army for twelve years and then transferred into the Air Force. So we had all the lingo as a result of that, you know. Yeah. You know, he would still call <laughs> he would still call, you know, airmen troops, yell trooper at people and he'd get his stuff mixed up. But uh a couple years ago I sold what was a pretty big small business and all I do now is run a little company called onlinegreatbooks.com where we you know, help people take on a liberal arts education, you know, for themselves. And, and I'm also a barbell coach. So I teach people to get super strong using barbells and, and read those books, which is in my mind, it's really the same activity, the two things. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get to online great books and that service. We can talk barbell coaching as well. Truth in lending, Scott, as you know, I am also, I guess, a disciple of barbell strength training and just recently signed up for online great books. So I'm sure our discussion will will get there eventually, but I want to hear a little bit more about your experience growing up uh, in the Air Force with with a father that was enlisted. And tell us about what he did, what his background was, what he did for the Air Force, what your experience was as a dependent. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's still around. He's, he retired, I don't know, when was it, 2003? And he was in from 66 to 2003. Long time, very long time. And he retired. He was motor pool chief for uh, 138th at the, uh, well, 219th, I can't remember, engineering squadron uh, attached to an Air National Guard unit here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he had been a, uh, he had been a diesel mechanic for most of his career in the Air Force. And before that, when he was in the Army, when he was in the Army, he was in uh, Army Aviation and a uh, commo chief and uh, moved over into the motor pool in the Air Force. And uh, he enjoyed it. I did not. You know, he really he really encouraged me to join. And, and I went to the University of Oklahoma and a degree in the sciences and he he encouraged me to enlist and wasn't interested it's just i'm unemployable i've got problems with authority i I am not a fit for that stuff Uh, but you know he loves it he he loves everything about it like you know he every form number every regulation he just he just loves all of that stuff you know he just loves the form and shape and the structure of the whole thing like you know doing like the social enterprise of the military is fascinating and f- fun for him. And uh, I did not find any of that stuff interesting <laughs> or fun at all. Uh, I used to get to go to work with him a lot. I washed a lot of staff cars and uh, got to go and, you know, and see him work and, and got to go and participate quite a bit, which is kids probably can't do that now. This would have been probably in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, and, and, I, and I liked that stuff. But, you know, to the online great books thing. In the Iliad, in book six, there's this argument between Hector, who's the, the greatest warrior on the Trojan side, and his wife Andromaca. Andromaca means man fighter, by the way. And they've got a baby boy. And he's got his helmet on and everything. And he puts the helmet on and the kid starts crying. And he takes the helmet off and the kid stops crying. 
And uh, it was a lot like that. You know, you, we just, we didn't talk to dad until he took his fatigues off. And he's Sergeant Hambrick, fuck it. Don't even try. Don't even try. And, uh, you know, he'd unloose his boots and take them off and go change, get out of his fatigues and stuff. And, you know, 30, 45 minutes later, how's your day? <laughs> but until then, no. And so I read that in the Iliad. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And we were, uh, you know, I was born in 74. So, you know, Vietnam was still going on when I was born. I don't, of course, I don't remember that stuff. But um, actually, it was the mid 80s before he would actually wear his uniform home because there was so much fallout and flack and bullshit from the public, you know, even in Oklahoma that, uh, you know, he'd changed before he jumped in his truck to head home, you know, anyway, that, that uniform is, uh, at that time was a big deal and it was a big deal for him. He'd like, you know, you put on, you, but you're a different person. You're in a different role and a different person, uh, when you suit up as it were. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't that interested in Sergeant Hambrick. That's great. That's great. Sergeant Hambrick, nah, he sucks. <laughs> so that, that's really interesting because I often have that type of conversation with people about whether they are on the, the fence on whether or not they want to join the military or not. And I have no qualms in saying to people that this life is not for everybody. It's a lifestyle. It's not a job. It is a lifestyle that, I mean, even when you take that, that uniform off, even when Sergeant Hambrick came home and he took that uniform off, was dad for the rest of the evening, you know, that, that uniform was still on him. It was still on his mind. It was something that still affected him day in and day out. And, and if that's something that you don't want to be a part of, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Or if you try it out and you do it for four, six, ten 15 years and then you you come to a point where you realize that you don't want to do it anymore hey that's okay there is nothing wrong with you taking that uniform off both literally and figuratively and being done with it most people change careers and most people do so it wouldn't be crazy for someone in the military to do that but you know it was it was very good to us it was very stable and you know we were all around through all kinds of economic ups and downs. And, you know, there was always a paycheck and we always had insurance and we always, you know, it was, it, it took very, very good care of us. And it was, uh, it was very rewarding for my dad, you know, and that's good. You know, I know a lot of guys my age and their dads did not have careers that were gratifying or rewarding to them. And that's, that's another kind of bad deal. You know, dad comes home from a career that he doesn't find very rewarding well, he's a different kind of dick than, than Sergeant Hambrick was. You know, he's a depressed guy. These guys, men are killing themselves. Like, you know, suicide rates are going up, up, up. And of course, it's, you know, mostly white males, so nobody cares. But, you know, there's a lot of desperation out there because of unfulfilling work and alienating work. And so, uh, you know, that was not the case for my dad. He, he really loved it. And, uh, yeah, still does. You know, he goes, eats breakfast almost every weekday with a bunch of retired military guys. It's Wednesday. And I, I, I try to go to the breakfast with those guys on Wednesdays. I wasn't able to do it today, but, uh, you know, they, you know, it's, uh, it's also, you know, a social outlet for him. I don't think anybody, I don't know. I don't think that civilians can understand 
the career military guy's whole existence. You know, like he's, you know, if he's going to go talk to a bunch of guys that retired as petroleum engineers from Conoco or, you know, whatever, I'm sure they're great guys, but he doesn't relate to those people as well as he does. The people that were in Panama when they kicked Noriega out and all of that stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The training and the experiences that we pass through as members of the military, there is very little on the outside that it can equate to it, that can give a civilian a glimpse and a bit of understanding of what it is that, that we go through in the defense of our nation. But that's not to say that you know, civilians can't appreciate what it is that we do, that they can't offer true and genuine support uh, for the military, just as you've experienced with your father. You've loved him. You've given him the support that he needs so that he can, that he can do the job and be able to process through all of it and, and live a normal life post-military. So certainly, like we were saying, it's not for everybody, but everybody can play a part in it in supporting and carrying out the mission of the military. One thing that I want to ask you, Scott, is while you were going through this experience as a dependent in the Air Force, as a son of an enlisted airman, what was your experience with Air Force officers? Did you know the difference between the two? Could you, could you tell the difference? And what was that like? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly knew the difference. Um, you know, they're, they're not technicians. <laughs> they don't get dirty. <laughs> no, when you're a little kid, I mean, that's the difference, you know, but no, I, I did. And my dad had a great number. It still does have a great number of his better friends that are officers. His best friend was an enlisted man. And when I think he was E five, he actually went to OCS and he ended up making general. And that, that was my dad's best friend. He, he died earlier this year. His name was, uh, I'm, I'm gonna get all sad. David Engel and, uh, the fine guy. And like I said, that's my dad's best friend. And, uh, like, you know, dad made E9 and he made general and, uh, you know, they fished together and, uh, we're good friends. Dad had a number of other, a, n- a number of other friends that, uh, that were officers. He, you know, when I got like 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, he would tell me about second first lieutenants he was dealing with, you know, that were my age and, and, uh, get to hear some of those stories and, you know, but by that time he's E7, E8, E9, you know, has some role, I guess, and uh, showing them the ropes and uh, <laughs> keeping them out of trouble and uh, get, would get to, you know, hear some of that. But when I was around, when I was still at home, you know, 15, 16, 17, you know, he directly reported to a like colonel who he liked. And then, uh, then he got another one that was, I thought, incompetent and made everything very difficult, you know, started having trouble passing ORI, you know, and lots of troubles. So, yeah, I remember, I remember, uh, I think quite a bit about the different roles that these, you know, two different classes of personnel, you know, you read about, I don't know, 150 years ago, there was, you know, enormous differences between enlisted and officer corps. And I at least didn't see it that way at the, you know, in the eighties and nineties when I was around it a lot. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to join Online Great Books is because 
there is this difference between the enlisted soldier or airman or sailor and then the commissioned officer. And that dates back all the way to the Greek and the Roman era. And I want to understand that better. You know, as a commissioned officer in the Air Force, I have responsibility for the mission and the, the well-being, the training, the equipment, the organization of enlisted airmen. And if this profession has existed for millennia, then there are probably some smarter people than me that have spoken or written on the topic previously. And I feel that there's a lot that I could learn from them. And I'm excited about the, the opportunity to work through the great books, such as you mentioned the, the Iliad, following on to the Odyssey, and then the writings of Plato and Aristotle, moving into later philosophers that can help me to better understand what it means to be a commissioned officer. Well, do we want to talk books? Go ahead. Go ahead and make your plug. Well, at, at online great books, we read these books. You know, we send you a book. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. You know, we send people a book, but it's not a book club. Like books are around, right? You know, and these books are out of copyright. So there are even free ones out there. But we send everybody the Iliad, for example. And we all read the same edition. We think we've picked the best edition. We all read the same edition. So when we talk about something, we can literally be on the same page. And we read about three hours a week. An average person for three hours a week, 30 minutes a day, six days a week, can get the work done. And we read about the Iliad. And then we have a seminar where we have a seminar host ask questions of the readers that help the readers improve their understanding of the text and the problems and the ideas in the text. And, you know, the Iliad not a lot of strategy in there. There's a lot of throwing rocks and a lot of, uh, you know, sword play and stuff. Not a lot of strategy in there, even not a lot of tactics. There are definitely conflicts in leadership. So you can see um, the officer corps argue and fight. So I end up asking a lot of questions about, you know, what is war? You read the Iliad and a lot of people die in that darn thing. Well, what is it? You know, what is war? Uh, is this a just war? What is a just war? Can there be a just war? You know, we don't really get to delve into those kinds of topics much in Plato, Aristotle. You probably will we talk about ethics and politics, and and then just a little bit later, you know, we read Caesar's War in Gaul, the Gaelic War, so good. And then uh, Augustine talks a little bit about just war, and then Aquinas, man, Thomas Aquinas the best possible discussion about just war theory and, you know, proper use of violence, really interesting stuff. Yeah. So meanwhile, reading things, dealing with topics like what is justice? What is virtue? What's the right way to behave? How do we interact with people? What's the best way to govern? What's the worst way to govern? How do you know something? Oh, you say, you know that. How, how do we prove a truth claim? You know, and I think that knowing all those things, what is justice? How do you prove a truth claim? How do you think about things? How do you know you know something? Like, what's the list of things you have to know to say you understand what a dog is? It's not as easy to answer as you think, but to know the answers to that stuff makes it easier to make decisions about the grocery list or who has to get hurt to protect the others. Yeah, it makes us think more clearly, I think. Absolutely. 
and that's why I'm so excited about this. And I would invite anybody that's listening to this podcast to join online great books or start a group, man. Yeah. Start a home group, start a, a discussion group, because these are the kinds of things that officers in the air force or officers in any branch of the military need to understand is what is war? When is it okay to, to go to war? And to understand human relationships, because on a day-to-day basis, that's what we do. We are leaders of people. And if you don't understand the human, if you don't understand how people think and how you can influence them, then that's going to greatly diminish your ability to be effective as a leader. Obviously, I haven't passed through all of these books yet. That's why I joined the, the group. But I am certain that there will be great lessons learned and on the back end, I will hopefully be a better officer and leader of airmen. Our goal is to create or to inculcate a liberal arts education. And the liberal arts kind of got a bad rap. You know, a lot of liberal arts colleges are just kind of off the rails and are just like these weird social experiments at this point. So liberal arts have kind of gotten a bad rap. But for about 2,000 years, up until about, I don't know, five years ago, it was really about studying grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And the mind seems to assimilate knowledge in the way that the trivium, the grammar, logic, and rhetoric works. So grammar, grammar is not just direct objects and nouns and verbs and sentence diagramming. It's, it's the bones of any subject. You can't learn anything until you learn the special vocabulary, you know, the jargon, you might need to know a little basic arithmetic or something to take economics or whatever. So you've got to learn the basics first, the grammar, and then you start to organize. You start to organize all of the information in this new topic in your mind. If it's navigation, you start to, you know, you learn the terms, learn how to read a compass. And then, then you start to like organize all of the principles in your mind. And that's the logic of the thing. And the rhetoric is when you learn to, you can actually teach somebody else how to do the thing. You know, when one teaches to learn, you know, the, the rhetoric parts where you learn to speak convincingly and beautifully in, in an organized way about the topic at hand. So that seems to be the way we learn stuff. And when you study the liberal arts, you're really learning how to learn. And while the, learning the liberal arts isn't going to make you a better welder maybe or any specific thing. It should teach us how to learn other skills more quickly. Should teach us how to ask better questions. You know, and if we ask better questions as we're learning, we learn more quickly and more thoroughly and our schools really don't educate the kind of school schools, a weird thing that like fish and children hang out in. And they're not really about education. It's kind of about standing in line and put your name in the top right-hand corner and learning how we do the game, the thing. And we need that, you know? You know, how do you get people to stop at a red light? Well, you kind of got to start in kindergarten. But the education piece falls away. And the education piece, the difference between schooling and education is, you know, one of them is a training and the education is uh, preparing the mind for any information that it may need in the future. And so I hope that the liberal arts do that. Yeah. And I'm glad that you got to the topic of education because that is certainly something that I wanted to discuss with you. One of the requirements 
to be an officer in any branch of the military in order to receive a commission, you do have to have a bachelor's degree from an accredited university. And that is one of the major differences between the requirements for being an officer versus being enlisted. Clearly, there are plenty of enlisted soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen that have their bachelor's degree or master's or even PhDs in some instances, but they, for whatever reason, chose to not pursue a commission. But you will not meet a, a commissioned officer who does not have a bachelor's degree at least. And here we're talking about the importance of a liberal arts education. And I want to contrast that against this requirement for those who want to be an officer in the military have to pass through a university setting, learn the game, get schooled as it were in order to receive that commission. Why? I think at some point it was probably a good idea, but at this point, I think, you know, most universities are postmodern, non-objective, neo-Marxist, and are anathema to <laughs> the function of the military. You know, you're sending your officer corps to the enemy for four years. I, I, think, it's the, I think it's the dumbest fucking idea that you could probably even undertake at this point. You know, when they instituted that stuff, it probably wasn't a bad idea. And there are probably some schools, you know, you send a kid to VMI, it's probably fine, right? Well, let's go back a little bit further you know, pre-university, back in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, the officers came from the aristocracy. Sure. They'd buy their commissions. Exactly. Yeah. There, there wasn't an educational requirement. There was a monetary, a financial, a wealth requirement in order for them to get into a commission. So somewhere between then and now, that was translated into in undergraduate education at a university. Why? Yeah, it's not clear to me. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, it's probably good shorthand, right? Like, okay, this is a little more of an academic person maybe than one that doesn't go. You know, it probably, at some point, I don't know, in 1962, if you got a kid out of a state university, you probably had a pretty good idea that they had taken, you know, real live integral and differential calculus and knew some things and could hit the books. You know, oh, okay, this little kid that we might actually be able to send to general staff school at some point. And, you know, and they probably got some of the mathematical training and things that in their own dime before GI Bill that the government didn't have to pay for, probably. I, I don't know. I don't know. But at this point, you're literally turning them over to people who are anathema to your mission for four years before you bring him in to the officer corps. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So there. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I'm an academic. You know, I'm, I've got my master's degree. I'm working on a PhD. And so I'm a product of that system. But at the same time, seeing what officers need to be capable of in order to ensure mission success and their ability to, to lead and take care of their people... I see no correlation whatsoever to having a piece of paper that says they were able to toe the line and manage at least a, a C minus in the majority of their classes, you know, for four years in a row. Yeah. 
And I've said it twice. I would have to make you say something about it. These schools, I don't think are capable of creating the kind of people that you need who are going to be professionals and killing people and breaking stuff. I mean, that's the job. No, I agree with you. Right. The things that the, an Air Force officer is responsible for is number one, execute the mission. Two, lead people. Three, manage resources. Four, improve the unit. And five, do all of this on a foundation of good moral character. When I see those requirements, I don't see bachelor's degree in there at all. Yeah. I would suspect not ever having, having held the job, and I know that there are a number of different jobs that you can hold, but you need to have some math. You need to have some science. You need to have some of these things that you can get at college. So if they get rid of the bachelor's degree requirement, they're going to have to get that stuff somewhere. I mean, you know, you need your guys to have some algebra. Can't you get that from a good liberal arts education? Uh, yeah, you can. You can. But where are they going to get it? You know, where, where are they going to get it? You, you know, the, the United States Armed Forces will have to create that on their own. And, you know, and they've got some of it, right? They know how to do it. We've got the service academies and there's some other schools. Like I said, VMI would be fine. But just letting people go to just anywhere and, and saying that this is, that suffices, I think that's nuts. And, and by the way, my opinion is not a lot different from anybody that wants any darn job. I think the university system in the United States is just completely busted and dead. It just doesn't know it yet. It's getting ready to just completely fall apart. I can't wait. There are plenty in the university system, and I know this because I've worked in it, who know that what you say is true. Things are changing. People are able to get their education, their training off YouTube. They don't have to go to a university, pay $90,000 a year, and spend the rest of their lives suffering in debt when they can go to a trade school or they can get all the information that they need from a book or from some sort of online resource. And even if they want to go through formal education, there are so many online learning opportunities so that they can get the information that way. The brick and mortar university system is on its way out. And they recognize that. At least some do. Not, not enough. Not enough. It'll become apparent. It'll become apparent. Yeah. So, the, you know, any large organization, whether it's the armed forces or some big corporation, I think, I think they're going to all have to start creating some, some testing batteries and start getting away from the, you know, just, just having that blanket requirement for a diploma of some sort. One, a lot of the diplomas aren't worth what the employer thinks they're getting, whether that's the United States Air Force or Exxon Mobil. And two, it's getting to be so expensive for young people to get those degrees that it doesn't make the jobs worth it. So if you require somebody to have a diploma to get a commission as a second lieutenant, now you guys have got the GI Bill. So if they get in and they stay long enough, it gets taken care of, right? I don't know what it all, how it all works, but let's say it's not that. Let's say it's ExxonMobil again. You require the kid to have the degree you're going to have to pay him more because the darn degree costs so much. Over 20 years, you need to pay him enough extra that he can get his get backs plus the return on that investment. Like you said, what if the guy could go to Khan Academy and YouTube and get what he needs, go to ExxonMobil, HR department, take the test, show he's proficient with the things they need. They can actually pay that kid less and he can actually have more money. 
like some employer, some large company is going to figure this out and get rid of those requirements. And once that happens, if it's a big, big, like Fortune 100, the university system's dead. It is over. That is what's going to kill it. If Walmart said, we're not going to require degrees for any upper management anymore, here's the testing battery, go. Then it's over. Why would any kid go at that point? You mean to be the CEO of whatever company? I don't need a degree. They quit. It's over. I can't wait. There you go. So, you know, I, you know you've already got, you know, I think you guys get IQ tests, ASFAB, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what all. We've got huge numbers of tests. And so the United States Armed Forces could do something very, very similar. Yeah. And I don't think it would even be difficult. No. I think tomorrow the Secretary of the Air Force could say, we no longer require that officers need a bachelor's degree. They take the Air Force officer qualification test, the AFOQT, they go through a commissioning source, done. That's it. What else do you need? Why does there have to be this bachelor's program if we're going to take them out of their commissioning source onto active duty, send them to a, a tech school and teach them everything they need to know anyway? It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm on board. Let, let's, let's get rid of it. And if there are a few things, objective things that they want the, the student to get from the university setting, there you go. Just test for those if they don't have it. Help them remediate that or point them to where they can. You know, there's a, oh my gosh, I just forgot. Uh, there are all these test prep companies, you know, for the MCAT for medical school and the LSAT, or just Princeton Review and so on. Yep. There would be somebody crop up like Princeton Review to go help you out with your Air Force uh, officer's candidacy university equivalent qualifications and you brush up on it and you go pass. Right. What's wrong with that? How's that worse than a guy limping through with a 3.1? Oh, I don't know. I don't get it. It's all good and ready to go to hell. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> How much time do you give it? When do you think it's all going to happen? Oh gosh. It's going to look like nothing's happening until it just falls apart. It's going to be like the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe eight years, something like that. I have a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old. Neither one of them even leave it. Of course, you know, I'm a crazy person and they hear me talk and I run this like college antagonistic, you know, uh, online great books podcast and the, and the business and stuff. But they're not even close to interested. Like they've never even considered it for an instant as far as I know. There's a nice private university here in, in our town. And I, you think I can just get a library card there? That's the interest. That's it. I know lots of young people, you know, in, in my strength training role, I, I coach a lot of, you know, teenage guys and they're just not interested. Some of them are every, and I've got a couple of young men that come for coaching who um, are clearly engineer types. They need to be mechanical or chemical engineers or electrical engineers. You can just, it's just stamped all over them, you know, and those guys will go. The, the rest of them aren't going to do it. And these are the kids that are going to be going to college in the next two or three years. And most of them that I run into, even the ones that aren't like in my immediate circle are not interested. So this generation Z, these members are going to not sign up in record numbers. I don't think that'll kill it. Uh, they'll just throw more student loan money at it to make it look easier and cheaper. I really think the thing that will kill it is when a couple of big corporations say, we don't care anymore. We're not getting what we thought we were getting anyway. We're out. Here's our test. That'll be the end of it. And for, if anybody's listening, the CEO of anything's listening, cut it out. It's a huge competitive advantage. You'll crush everybody. Your payrolls will plummet. Your employees will have more money. 
you know, instead of the kids that are spending until 28 years old at the Harvard School of Business, you'll get them when they're 19. That's how you get the best people. Don't let Harvard get them and then fist fight everybody and pay top dollar. Get them when they're young. You pay them and build them yourself. And hey, that is free advice you know, to those corporations. But hey, the same is true for the military. The Air Force could jump on that right now and get them when they're 19, train them up to be exactly what it is that we need them to be now. Don't send them to a university and hope that they come out on the back end and do all right and be what you need. And by the way, you're going to lose a whole bunch of them because they can't keep their grades up. So we're cutting talent. We're keeping people away from the military that should be in here or that could be in here all because of this silly bachelor's degree requirement. I have often thought that the Air Force should just issue a bachelor. You know, let's say you go to all your tech schools and you do all the stuff that you need to do. Like, why couldn't you just say, okay, you've met all the requirements. You've passed everything that we have here, whatever the hell that is. Here's your diploma. And it's not a fraud, right? Like if, if, if a guy's in the Air Force for six years and busts his butt and goes to all of his schools, like what's he missing? Can he not write a paper? Like, does he not have enough math? Like, what's he missing? Why couldn't you bestow that upon somebody that had completed a sufficient amount of coursework? Because you guys, I mean, my dad, all, he had a, you know, he had a recliner in the living room, you know, a little table beside there, which had an ashtray on it for years. And then the ashtray went away. But there was a correspondence course on that goddamn table for 30 years. You mean my dad never got a college credit? Nothing equivalent to that? Nothing? That's ridiculous. Why don't they do that? So they actually do now. Yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with it now. So there is the Community College of the Air Force that is accredited and is able to award associate's degrees to enlisted airmen. Let's make it a four-year school. Let's go. Right? Right. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. It is also beyond me. So the Air Force has the ability to award master's degrees through the air university. So they can do associates and masters, but there's a, but they skip the bachelor's degree. <laughs> okay. Well, except okay. at the air force Academy, but that's a completely different animal. The fact remains is that the air force has the ability right now, literally right now to award its people bachelor's degrees and boom, turn them into an officer, but it doesn't do it. And I don't understand why. Yeah. Large organizations become very inefficient. <laughs> they create a lot of heat and <laughs> waste, you know, and just in, in the operating of the structure, you know, and uh, it's really tough. I was talking to a, an acquaintance of mine who's at a university who they have, it's a liberal arts university and, and they had talked to me uh, a couple of times about hiring me as a consultant to maybe fix some of their, their troubles. And I don't know if that's a smart idea of them to try to hire me or not, but we've talked about it. And I told them, they're like, well, you know, wow, all the stuff you're doing online, great books. Like you've been around two years. You have more people doing this than we do. We've been for 75 years. I'm like, well, it's easier for me because I have one job, which is to get more people to re read the books. They have two. They have to reform their organization so that they can get more people to read the books. And, uh, you know, that's what happens with any big organization. And, uh, all that reform stuff, it may be impossible. Like, 
right? When you, when an organization gets large enough, it may be impossible. There aren't holes big enough to throw all the bodies in that you need to, to uh, change the uh, physical fitness requirements. Yeah, right. There's another topic we could spend some time on. Yeah. Institutional inertia is a real thing. You know, pardon the, the bad metaphor here, the bad analogy. View the Air Force as a, as a carrier out in the ocean. It takes a long time to get that thing to turn. A lot of effort to you know, change the direction, but not impossible. I don't know that I would go that far to, to say that it, it's not possible at all. I think it is possible. You just got to get the right people in the right positions with the right mindset, and then those kinds of things can change. Or how about this? Get the right people in the right positions to listen to this podcast, and then they can change. We give them permission. We'll give them the ideas. We'll give them permission. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So one thing I should say about the interview with Scott is that I had the opportunity to talk with him for almost two hours. The portion of the interview that is shared here is just a very small part of the topics that we covered. Scott and I, after we discussed the requirement for bachelor's degrees and and what we think will happen with universities in the future, we got into his leadership philosophy and then later on into his his role as a strength coach and how that kind of plays into his what he thinks the Air Force should do about that. Scott is a strength coach with Barbell Logic and a co-host for the Barbell Logic podcast. So if you want to go check that out, you can uh, quite a bit about his philosophies on strength training and just the world in general, as well as the online great books podcast and that service. I encourage you all to take a look at that as it will help you get a better understanding of where Scott is coming from. And we'll set the stage for the rest of the interview as we release it in the future. So with all that, Reed, I'm going to turn it over to you to offer some initial thoughts on the discussion that I had with Scott Hambrick. Yeah. Oof, where to begin? So many thoughts. Probably we should also let the audience know that you and I have been talking about this for a little while now, because there's a whole lot in there, a whole lot to digest. Yeah. So... A couple things I think I want to get out front for anyone who has a bachelor's degree. Congratulations. And I mean that genuinely, right? It's not common. It's a hard thing. And I do think it's something that people should aspire to. And if you're right in the middle of it, keep chugging along. It will be worth it. And and two, I'm not an academic nor an economist, but from my studies in both of those areas, it has appeared to me that a bachelor's degree is still a significant factor in social mobility. Your income potential is higher if you have that degree. I think the thing we should be talking about is should that degree be probably the most significant thing that separates the enlisted versus the officer corps? And that is something I'd be happy to discuss. So, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, we already kind of heard them, Colin. Right. Yeah. I'm of the opinion that the bachelor's degree is not a good way to distinguish an officer from an enlisted airman. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, let me give you a little background and context on that, right? So 
let's take my career field as an example. So I'm a 14N intelligence officer. We go to technical training, Goodfellow Air Force Base for about six months. And there is an enlisted counterpart to my career field. It is the 1NO. And they are just like the 14Ns. Well, in general, 14Ns are generalists. They don't really shred out or do anything too particular. That may be changing, but for right now, technical training is all very broad. You kind of touch a little of everything. And it's the same for the 1 and O's. The real only difference is how they joined the military. And then the career field is pretty similar if you were to stay in one of those tracks. So it's a little bit hard. I've, I've worked with 1 and O's that have bachelor's degrees. And the only difference is they went to basic and I went to OTS. And I'm not sure that sits well with me. I don't know that that should be the divider. It's something I've thought a lot about and talked a lot about with others. And again, I, I want to get this out there, right? For anyone who wants to be an officer, I don't want them to like stop pursuing their degree. That is not a wise course of action. Don't do that because, you know, Colin, you and I are just two captains who have a passion for this idea, but Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nothing's going to change in the immediate future just because you and I are voicing an opinion about bachelor's degrees. Yeah, yes. So please, no one stop pursuing their bachelor's degree as they pursue an officership. But it does make you wonder. I think we maybe want to examine a little bit more about our military history. So going back into the late 60s, early 70s, post-Vietnam, the draft was so wildly unpopular as a result of that highly unpopular war that the Nixon administration conducted a lot of studies and they determined that we should move forward with an all-professional, all-volunteer force. Recommend going to RAND. They have a lot of good studies on this. And I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the idea of an enlisted member was someone who was temporarily in the service and not always or often at their choosing, right? To enlist has a connotation of to like take you. And that's how many people were pressed into the service back in the day. If you think of the Royal Navy and the United Kingdom and how members were, were literally dragged out of pubs, down the stairs and into the Thames River onto naval vessels, that's how they joined the Navy. Is they had one too many got whacked over the head and the next thing they know, they wake up in the service of their nation, right? That's what enlistment used to be. Yes, there were volunteers, but they were for short periods of time. And the officers were the permanent members of the military. They would, as you guys described, they would either buy their commission, inherit it. They were the professional members. Once we got rid of the draft as a way to build and maintain our forces, that really changed. And it feels like the bachelor's degree requirement is still kind of hanging on like a vestigial organ of some thing we've built in the past. And I'm not sure it's going to prepare us as we need to be to be the force of the future that we need to bring. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the requirement for a bachelor's degree is it's outdated. It just carries some institutional inertia with it that that's the way that it's been for so long that that's the way that we're going to continue to do it because 
it would be too hard to make a change based on the the relationships that the Air Force, at least, and really the Department of Defense in general, has built with universities across the nation. There's a lot of money involved, especially with regards to ROTC scholarships and other types of uh, commissioning programs. And the service academies, the Air Force Academy, West Point, and the Naval Academy at Annapolis, they carry a reputation that they want to uphold about being like the Ivy League schools of the Department of Defense. And so to cut out the requirement of the bachelor's degree in order to receive a commission as an officer then requires quite a bit of detangling of the Department of Defense away from the higher education industry. And I don't know that there is an appetite at the higher levels of senior leadership in order to make that sort of thing happen. Yeah, I I mean, it's a tough problem, right? I mean, it is and has been traditionally a quote-unquote easy button to, for lack of better terms, sort people you guys discussed it still used today in industry it's still used widely for hiring decisions and in many ways the military can be and has been on the forefront of some of those types of change in some ways we're ahead of the curve in some ways we're behind and i don't know if we're going to be behind or ahead of this one and again not being an academic not being involved in the university system like you are, I can't really comment it on that, on the life of the university. But there are a lot of things that are very interesting about how the program works, how the process works. So let's just do a little thought exercise. Let's say what Scott is suggesting comes true. Let's say that 10 years down the road, it's 2030 or 2035, 15 years down, the university system no longer exists or at least has completely shifted from kind of like the brick and mortar system to an online format. What does the military do at that time? When universities no longer exist, what will they turn to? What will the Department of Defense turn to to distinguish officers from the enlisted? Maybe they make them all come from the service academies. Okay, so so that is definitely a valid suggestion. And that is something that I kind of hinted at in the interview is that the Air Force it has the Air Force Academy. It has Air University. It has the ability already in place to grant an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and I don't know this for certain, but I imagine that if it wanted to, it could probably grant a PhD. So this infrastructure is already in place and already functioning for the Air Force to take an individual all the way through the academics that are quote unquote required to receive a commission 
and continue on in their educational development. So maybe in that scenario, 2030, 2035, when universities cease to exist, maybe that is the solution to that type of problem. Run everything through the Community College of the Air Force, the Air Force Academy, and then Air University. Yeah, see, and here's where I, again, not coming from this world, but I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise. I, I, I just think the universities are too large. I think they're too ingrained in our culture. I think implode is a big word. Is there a post-internet university? I think it could change significantly. What if it went back to being less of a technical training and more of the original idea, more of a philosophical, broad education versus technical training? That's something you and Scott talked a little bit about. So perhaps it could completely revolve, I guess, devolve back to what it used to be, You know, more of a broad philosophical-based classical learning since the technical training is no longer what is required since it can be acquired and gained in other ways. I just, so part of the time when I was in the UK, I was at Cambridge University. The school opened in 1209. Okay, that's awesome. Multiple hundreds of years before Columbus. And it's still there. The same bookstore that opened in the 1400s is still the university bookstore. That's amazing. So I, I, while I'm all about change, I'm all about advancement, I'm all about technology, this is one of those things I'm just not sure it's going to go away. I think it can and will and must change. I just, the idea that all of a sudden there is no university system, I'm, I'm not sure I accept that premise. Right. And I think I should say here that I'm not against bachelor's degrees. I am an academic. I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I'm working on a PhD. So it's not that I'm against the university system. It's just with the understanding that I have of what the university system is and where it's headed, I am asking the question, why do we require bachelor's degrees of our officers and can we do it better? Can we get out ahead of what we believe is coming And we're already seeing it. The vast majority of the classes that are taken at each of these universities is now online. People are choosing to reduce the friction in their lives by taking classes and getting the education that they want from an online format, whether it's through the university itself or through some other for-profit educational delivery system. So, While I agree with you that it is hard to imagine a system where Cambridge no longer exists, but I don't think that the university system is like the housing market and is, quote, too big to fail. Yeah, still not sure I accept the premise. Again, it's people have been saying books are going to go away. I don't know. And on that note, online great books is a great example of a return or a devolution back toward what things used to be. So maybe that is the direction that we're going to go is that 
the requirement will stay in place for a bachelor's degree in order to receive a commission, but that bachelor's degree is going to trend away from the STEM type technical career fields and toward more of a liberal arts, humanities, soft sciences type of education. Yeah. And we can think about this this way as well, right? Like I have a master's degree in cell molecular biology. I don't use any of the textbooks that I studied. I, I don't need the specific knowledge that I gained in my degree. What I absolutely do need and use every day is the ability to learn that I developed, the ability to research, to ask questions. And that's the education I think you and Scott were talking about, the idea of learning. And that I don't think will ever go away. I hope not. Right. Good heavens. So if that is what we're after, and if that is what we are asking people to demonstrate before we give them a commission, I can be at peace with the requirement. I agree that I'm not certain that every degree that has been attained has done that. I'm not sure, right? I simply can't know. But yeah, in general, I'd like to change the whole way we get people to where the officer rank. But have we talked about this yet, Colin, publicly? We haven't. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to go. Are we going to do it? Let's give the audience a taste, and then we will definitely turn this into a full-blown episode later on. Got it. Okay, so here is the elevator speech. I think every single person who joins a military branch should go to their basic training. I think all officers should be selected only from amongst the enlisted members. I think that we should pay people more for the things we value. So I think that if you graduate from college and you want to join the Air Force, we're going to make you go to basic training. We're going to make you wear stripes for at least two years. And you'll get paid more than someone who goes to basic training without a degree, enough that it's a viable degree and an option for you and your family. But officers would be selected only from amongst enlisted corps. All the service academies would be turned into the location for professional development. They would not be bachelor's degree awarding institutions. Um, and I love our service academies. I've been to a couple of them. They're fantastic. But I don't think that should be the only difference is that someone who's 21 and went to college is now an officer and someone who didn't isn't. Amen. <laughs> But this is why we're friends. This is why we're friends, Colin, right? <laughs> no, there's quite a few threads on that that I think we're going to want to tug on and see where we end up. But I think I'm going to offer my final thought, and I think this is probably where we're going to end, is that if you go back to our episode one, what does it mean to be an officer? I think the difference is in the commission. And I don't think that... You and I, and I'm going to suggest this, that the Air Force as a whole have fully addressed what the commission means. I don't think, even me as a commission officer, I don't think I fully grasp what the commission means or what its full potential is. And whose fault is that? Is that 
and I'm not throwing spears your way. I'm honestly asking, is that the fault of our accession source? Is that the fault of our leadership? Is that our failure as officers to learn? I honestly don't know. I'm certainly going to take a portion of the blame in that I haven't made it as much of a, a pointed focus area of study, but I'm trying to rectify that, which is part of the reason why I've joined online great books and now want to investigate further from all the way back, you know, 2000 years plus ago, the occupation of being an officer from a philosophical standpoint. I want to understand why did the officer come into existence to begin with and how has it grown, evolved, developed over time to what it is now? How did we get here? So that's why I'm going through this exercise of studying these books with online great books and with Scott Hambrick so that I can better interrogate that question of why officers exist and what does it mean to be one. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question either. I certainly do feel that there is a difference and that there is a gravity associated with it, but I don't know that I know enough. And I'm, I'm like you, I'm going to take some of that on me. And that's part of what we're doing, right? Trying to figure that out. Yep, absolutely. Well, Reed, there's so much more that we could discuss. Obviously, we've kind of telegraphed it here that we want to see as some potential changes in the way that we create officers and develop them into the leaders that they need to be. We want to better understand what it means to have a commission. What does that title, what does that office actually mean? What can you do with it? What should you do with it? But we're going to leave it there for right now. We hope that Scott's interview, the questions and the suggestions that he's made are useful to you. If nothing else, they've at least gotten you to think a little bit about the importance of the bachelor's degree, the university system, and what it is that the Air Force truly values. Yeah. One last little note. If anybody gets maybe defensive or hot under the collar, maybe ask yourself why that is. And maybe it's because some of your key assumptions and understandings have been challenged. And if you're uncomfortable, that probably is a good time for you to grow, right? That's what we need to do for growth. So I, I will put my hand up in the air and be like, you know, I wasn't comfortable with some of the things we were talking about here, but that's part of it is you need to get outside your comfort zone. That's what's required for growth. Yep, absolutely. And if you do find yourself uncomfortable with any of these things, we invite you to join our Facebook group and let's discuss them. Let's hash it out. Reed and I do not have the answer to these questions. We are seeking for them, but we can't do it alone. And we don't think that anybody out there should either. But you know, if, if we truly value this profession of being an, an officer in the Air Force, we need to help each other find ways to be better at it. So we invite you to, to join that discussion with us in the Facebook group. If you have any questions, you can post them there. You can also engage with us on all social media outlets through our email, airforceofficerpodcast at gmail.com. And we will definitely do our best to answer your questions there. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. 
mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.